Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. I'm here today with Laura Moran to talk about her book, Belonging and Becoming in a Multicultural World, Refugee Youth and the Pursuit of Identity, published by Rutgers University Press in 2019. Thank you very much, Dr. Moran, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, at the New Books Network, we'd like to start with learning about our guests' backgrounds. Um, so could you tell us about your background in anthropology, how you ended up conducting an ethnographic research with refugee youth in Brisbane, Australia, and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, so I am a cultural anthropologist, and I specialize in participatory youth research, and I publish on the refugee experience on um, racial justice in youth studies and, and racial identity among young people. And the, the research for this book that, that we'll discuss was actually completed for my PhD dissertation, um, which I undertook at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. And uh, before, um, before embarking on my, my PhD on my PhD um, research, I completed a master's degree in social anthropology at Oxford University. And there I wrote sort of broadly about issues of, of, of children's agency in, in political movements. And so I knew um, that I was interested in anthropological research on children and youth. Um, and after the completion of, of my master's degree, I was living in Brisbane, Australia. And at that point, I was just volunteering extensively with the growing refugee population there. And so as my, as my interest in pursuing a PhD in anthropology developed, I, um, I sort of married my new interest and connections in the refugee community with my established interest in anthropological perspectives on childhood and youth. And I decided to explore the refugee experience among young people as a topic for my PhD. And that's how it began. Oh, that sounds amazing. Could you contextualize uh, the um, relationship between Australia's multiculturalism and colonialism and how does Australian context of multiculturalism differ from others? How did you feel that experience when you were conducting your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so so the, the book... Um, it, it explores broadly racial identity politics of, of young Sudanese and Karen refugees who had resettled in, in Brisbane. Um, and, and for listeners that don't know, um, Karen are an ethno-linguistic group who've been persecuted in Myanmar and, and live in large numbers in camps on the Thai-Burma um, border. Um, and Australia provides a particularly rich context to conduct research on 
sort of multicultural discourse and policy and to explore the issues of identity and national belonging that that ignites, essentially because um, because of Australia's unique combination of demographics where over half the population was born overseas or, or have a parent who was, and also its recent social history where multiculturalism emerged um, in the 1970s as a formal national immigration um, policy. So I can just briefly provide a little more um, context here. Mm-hmm. Since since the um, since the Second World War, Australia has had one of the largest and most diverse immigration programs in the Western world, um, and issues of race and ethnicity have have been at the forefront, sometimes explicitly and sometimes more implicitly, in Australia's immigration history. And we can trace this back to what's known as the White Australia Policy which was a Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act. It was passed in 1901 at the time of Australia's Federation. And it was designed in order to prevent the immigration of non-white people um, from settling or working or living in Australia. And so after World War II, while still under the white Australia policy, Australia um, implemented a a broad immigration program um, through which immigrants were actively sought and there was this social mandate to populate or, or perish. Um, and then and at that time earlier on, you know, the waves of discrimination sort of changed over time. So early on discrimination was aimed at Greek and Italian migrants who were considered not completely white, but sort of sufficiently white to be accepted um, as second choice to Western European migrants. Um, and since the white Australia policy was officially dismantled in the 1970s. Um, Australia's immigration framework changed from an emphasis on assimilation, which encouraged migrants migrants to adopt the the practices of the Anglo-Celtic majority, then to a shift towards integration, which supported migrants to maintain a bit more of their own cultural practices for a time before ultimately assimilating. And now currently, um, the policy of multiculturalism that is that we have in place now that celebrates diversity and encourages migrants to sort of preserve the cultural practices of their home countries. Um, and just I just briefly, I can unpack how I frame multiculturalism in the book. Um, I refer to to multicultural policy as just as providing a framework for addressing cultural and religious and linguistic diversity in the context of of the universal rights and, and inclusion in the nation state. Um, and I sort of look at how, while that multicultural policy is legitimized as a way to sort of accommodate difference among minorities, it, it contains certain messages that are that are more tied, implicitly tied to national and ethnic heritage, as well as to race, and that fuels sort of broader moral implications of multiculturalism. That's amazing. So um, could you tell us about the value you have found in working with youth for this book in this context of Australian multiculturalism? Because you're in the appendix of your book, you give extensive information on your participants, which is very much appreciated, by the way. Uh, The majority of your participants seem to be from Sudan, Burma, Uganda, and their ages range from 9 to 19. Mm-hmm. And previously, also for your master's research, you have worked with children. So what kind of a value do you find 
in working with youth and children for this book and beyond, both personally and scholarly? Um, sure. Well, I think for this book, um, I think that the way young people sort of intuitively and per perceive and express the messages of multiculturalism um, is just is really interesting and and you can see how they how they use it and play with it and I think young people do so in particularly creative ways and to, to look at that and their representations of identity I, I found was sort of illuminating about the context but also just showing us the, the the multiple ways in which young people are um, active social agents um, and just playfully engaging with the context of, of their lives. Um, as I mentioned, I, I began with uh, volunteering with the refugee community in, in Brisbane, and part of that was tutoring young people. Um, part of it was working for organizations that provided sort of resettlement assistance in terms of housing and employment and language training. Um, and then from there, I gained employment for a number of years as the coordinator of an after-school mentoring and tutoring program for young people from refugee backgrounds in the Brisbane area. And that became the preliminary site for my field work. Um, and then, you know, I, I also spent time in a local high school and met other young people through this sort of snowballing effect that happens in ethnographic field work. And I spent time in their homes and in train stations and just wherever they hung out. Um, and I think working with young people and working with a, a contained number of, of young people, my, I had a, about 40 key informants. Um, it just allowed for a really nuanced conversation. I think young people, like I said, they're creative um, in how they engage the broader context of their lives. And they're also um, can be open um, and just interested in having a chance to tell their own stories, because I think a lot of times their stories are are um, told for them. So, yeah, I found working with young people is just a really um, fun and, and interesting <laughs> way to find out about the, the broader context I wanted to explore. Yeah, when I was reading the book, I also found it very fun, especially the way that you use humor um, mm -hmm. to tackle with. And uh, I will ask questions about this too. But first, I would like to know a bit more about your methodology, because it seems very engaged. You're both professionally and personally involved in this project. And I'm sure you had to make some choices to resolve or to acknowledge some of the power relations involved in your research because of your position as the coordinator. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about these relations and the methodology and um, the way you chose to be self-reflexive about these? Yeah, sure. Um, so I used extended ethnographic field work um, to look at sort of the re relationship between how young people presented a sense of their ethnic and racial identity and how they related that to the moral framework of anthropology. I mean, of, of multiculturalism in Australia. Um, and so, like I said, I, my, my predominant fieldwork site was a program that I was actually in the role of a coordinator for and a coordinated tutors for um, helping young people with homework and, and doing some leadership activities. Um, and so, yeah, that did present additional power dynamics other than the ones that already existed because of you know, the, the age difference and being in a, a role of authority. Um, and I guess the, the initial thing I did was I made participation in my research project optional and I didn't um, 
I told people about it briefly and then and then requested that they approach me if they were interested in, in participating. Um, so that's the way it worked at the program I coordinated. I tried to keep it very separate, have them approach me and then interviewing and talking about my research was conducted outside of that um, program. Um, so, so that's how I handled it in that context. But then I also did research at a school, at a high school, where I just spent mornings and afternoons kind of hanging out at the school, and I had to get permission to be there, obviously. And in, in the same way, I, I sort of had to meet people, and I took a really, I, I had the luxury of doing it very slowly, um, spending a lot of time there before I began officially interviewing. And I... Um, just approached people and asked them to come to me if they were interested in talking to me more and um, got permission from parents, obviously. I also had an infant daughter at the time mm. and she worked as a really useful um, <laughs> gate opener, I think, because these kids were it seemed to be interested in babies. And I, I remember initially I would ask them um, if I could come over to do an interview if someone was was becoming an informant and I would initially get um, busy you know they, like they're teenagers they had other things to do and if I said I'll bring my baby it was like yep I'm available so that was helpful they are family they were they grew up in families with lots of kids and had lots of young siblings and it just sort of I don't know lightened the mood and provided another element of interest so I just toted my baby along with me and that's sort of how we how we did it and I I think the, the, one of the things that helped me most was just having a lot of time at, at, with the young people and having worked in the, the um, at, in the role of coordinator for a, for a, a number of months before I began my field work, they were familiar with me and they, they knew me. And so there was a level of um, comfort there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds very interesting and kind of, always happens in ethnographic research, I guess, um, these unexpected things that make you more involved. And yeah, um, yeah um, it, it sounds like you made um, very good use of uh, those moments. <laughs> yes. Um, in the book, you're also doing a great job in engaging with self-reflexivity, <laughs> where you compare what you initially thought you would find and what you have found out. So your book demonstrates your conscious effort for self-reflexivity to show the very natural shifts and transformations you have experienced in your thinking. Can you take us through um, some of these shifts and transformations you have experienced in your thinking while conducting your research? Yes, I think that I can sort of characterize it with one core shift was that I initially thought that the, the young people's um, sort of racial identity and ethnic background wouldn't wouldn't factor largely into the way they portrayed themselves. I, I thought that they would um, this, this idea of hybrid youth and multiple identities, I thought that they would be much more. Um, I thought that they would the, that sort of downplaying of race, I thought would be more prominent that they would just have other things that were the focus of their identity. And what I found was that in some instances that was true, um, but there were other instances where they really engaged and used their racial identity in particular and, and politicized ways as the core, um, as a core element of their identity. And I think that was, 
that was sort of the, the biggest that was the biggest surprise for me. Um, just the creative and shifting way in which they used race was sort of not what I expected that I would find. And then the the sort of gist of what I explore in the book is um, is the relationship between the way that young people used race and how it relates to the context of multiculturalism more broadly. And that piece of it, I didn't anticipate at all either. I didn't set out to, to look at, uh, you know, it's hard to remember exactly what, what I thought I was going to be looking at as the sort of foundation of the project initially, but I don't think that it was Australian multiculturalism as much as it turned out to be. I really saw a relationship between what I describe as certain messages that emerged from multiculturalism and the the varied um, and creative ways that young people engaged race um, in their projections of identity. And so both the ways that they engaged race surprised me and also the ways that I saw that um, connecting to the Australian multiculturalist context also engaged, um, surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this connects us to uh, one of your major contributions, actually. So you're doing an amazing job in tackling with various theories, combining them, shifting them, playing with them in the third chapter of your book. Could you tell us about one of the major contributions of your book, namely the concept of dynamic responsiveness as symbolic capital and how this came to the foreground in your research? Sure. Um, yeah, I'll sort of walk us to that to that point. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I think that first of all, the idea of multiculturalism was really pervasive in these young people's lives. They're kind of steeped in it in ways that I didn't um, anticipate. Um, and one of the ways that that the young people encounter multiculturalism on a daily basis is through what I describe in the book as the discourses or messages of integration and tolerance that emerge in their school and community environments um, in a kind of abstracted framework of multiculturalism. Um, So in a nutshell, the messages that I'm referring to that, that the young people I worked with encountered on a regular basis were on the one hand, the ongoing pressures from lots of sides to, to, um, to rapidly absorb or to integrate into Australian society. And on the other hand, the sometimes celebratory and overt racialization of their ethnic identities through a kind of ethic of tolerance um, as they're asked to to kind of engage in performances of their ethnicity in various multicultural uh, celebrations. So I look at how the, the messages of integration and tolerance promoted in the school environment sort of alternated at school between a denial of race as a defining characteristic. And that would emerge in sort of language like we don't see race, race doesn't matter here. And and that was all in a sort of promotion of integration. And then on the other hand, there was a promotion of diversity in ways that young people um, interpreted as distinguished by skin color and, and culture of origin. And that was sort of portrayed in, in the name of tolerance and would, would um, manifest through these multicultural celebrations in which young people were asked to kind of perform um, 
their 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 identities and their ethnicity and their racial identity. And so the gist of what I'm exploring in the book is how young people engage those messages of integration and tolerance. And they do it in what I'll describe as as dynamic responsiveness. Um, what I found is that young people mobilize race and ethnicity in a way that's meaningfully connected to their awareness of or their engagement with the messages of integration and tolerance that they encounter in their everyday lives. Um, so I, I conceptualize in the book race and ethnicity in the research in terms of a kind of identity politics or performance of identity. Um, and and I, I, although there was a tenuousness to which this participant schools and the broader community engaged race, through multicultural discourse, um, it, as I state, as I mentioned, it was one of the most salient aspects of the young people's identities. So they talked about race and they talked about skin color. Um, they engaged with and they made fun of racism and they critiqued the way that that each other sort of represented racialized identities. And they did that pretty constantly. Um, and in my work, I try to demonstrate how the centrality of race to young people's identity work can be interpreted at least in part as a reflection of the centrality of race to these multicultural discourses that they encounter in their daily lives. Um, so what I would see was that the young people would evade and emphasize a sense of racial and ethnic identity in these particular ways. Um, so they would evade race by saying race doesn't matter, or they would emphasize it by saying, you know, we're the black kids, we're only friends with the black kids. Um, and to my observations, their practices of inhabiting and evading racial and ethnic identity occurred through what I refer to as um, hybridized and essentialized representations of themselves. And this is sort of the crux of the argument and how I'll um, move into my contribution of dynamic responsiveness. Um, so I know that hybridity and essentialism are sort of dense and historically fraught terms, but bear with me because I, as I use them, um, I think that they're useful in highlighting the different emphases and how young people characterize their ways of identifying with one another. So in my research, I use the term hybridity, not to represent the kind of mixed identities in the creation of a new one, like an African Australian identity or something like that, but rather to represent young people's own emphasis on their capacity to merge and mix different elements of their identities in terms of language or dress or style or friendship. Like this is when they would say, we mix it up. We, we take different elements. We're not one thing. So in a way, hybridity allowed them to to emphasize the sort of irrelevance of race to their lives. But then on the other hand, and in other instances, they used race as a sort of core element to their sense of self in terms of how they made friends, um, how they explained their sense of style and their general sense of self. And so it was this form of essentializing and they would kind of flip flop between those two, between emphasizing flexibility and a capacity for flexibility, and then also at other times depicting their ethnic identity in really essentialized or racialized ways. Um, and I think that kind of self-essentialism or strategic essentialism was um, for them a culturally empowering act that allowed a kind of solidarity amongst themselves. Um, and that sort of 
flip-flopping the way they did that is what I what I describe as dynamic responsiveness. Um, so in practice, what would that look like? Sometimes young people would would talk about themselves in completely racialized terms and say, I'm only friends with Black people. Um, and sometimes they would insist, you know, at times when I when I wasn't asking um, on race as really irrelevant. And I think that the way that they alternated those representations turned out to be significant um, in my findings. So they alternated between representing their sense of identity as completely detached from race and a sort of hybrid, hybrid representation of themselves to completely dependent on race in an essentialized um, representation of themselves. And they did so in ways that, that um, in the ways they represented their friendships and their social relationships and in their more formal performances of identity, which we can talk about. Um, but in the book, I explore their alternating assertions and, and denial of the significance of skin color through these hybridized and essentialized representations of identity. Um, I explore the way that how they do that critically engages the multicultural messages of integration and tolerance um, to which race is, is central. And I describe the relationship between young people's self-representations and those messages inherent to Australian multiculturalism as emerging through this process of dynamic responsiveness. Um, so what I call dynamic responsiveness is it's ultimately about the cultivation of belonging. Um, I think in any given social context, belonging can be fiercely asserted by some while it's simultaneously denied by others. Um, and in practical terms, this means that the ways in which people cultivate and assert a sense of belonging is constant, constantly shifting. Um, and I argue that for these young people, um, their negotiations of identity and belonging are undertaken at the interface of these experiences and perceptions of race and racism and in response to the discourses that emerge to confront it in, in multicultural context. So that's sort of what I mean by dynamic responsiveness. Um, a lot of scholars have argued that through a kind of everyday multiculturalism, young people develop multiple or hybrid identities. And with my approach using responsiveness as an analytic framework, I'm sort of trying to move beyond the, the, the mere prevalence of their multicultural encounters to explore a more active dynamic relationship between um, young people's sense of identity and, and the discourses that frame their lives. So that's a sort of, that's dynamic responsiveness in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> that was perfect. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And um, in, in chapter four, you choose some stories, very interesting stories about these young refugee people, uh, about their social relationships. So like friendship dating, fighting and mm -hmm. resolving their conflicts. Could you give us some more information about what made you choose these events um, that define social relationships and what are their relationships with defining oneself and belonging for your participants? Yeah, so I, I guess I chose those, um, those sorts of moments because those were the moments that I that I was privy to and that I witnessed and it just sort of emerged as those were the 
the things that illuminated to me the the, the way that um, young people's identities engaged with these the discourses that I talk about. So in chapter four, I explore the role of friendship making and choosing romantic partners as a as a process through which um, the young people could emphasize and downplay um, their racialized ethnic identity. And I looked at, again, how that engaged with the discourses of multiculturalism that they encounter. Um, but I explore how essentialized and hybridized representations of their, themselves are demonstrated as they engage, as they, as they kind of use the language of friendship and how that can serve to underscore and or unsettle in some instances their self-representation. So for example, at the school where I conducted a significant part of my field work, um, lots of the young people referred to their group of friends as the Africans and they accounted for their exclusivity and their sitting together as based upon being black, like we're the black kids, this is where we sit. Um, when they when the young people described themselves through these self-conscious um, racial essentialism, it acted as a kind of subtle resistance to the integrationist discourse that was really heavily promoted at that school um, in the in multicultural policy. So the school had this strong anti-racism, anti-race rhetoric, and a policy of mainstreaming uh, English language learner students. So, for example, on my first day um, at the school. And these, these students were separate from the ones who attended the um, after-school program. So it was sort of a different context. And on my first day of, of field work, the teacher told me race isn't an issue here. You know, this was brought up by her, not by me. Um, we've hardly ever had any racist incidents here. And she said there were so many people with different issues at the school. That was how she explained it to me, that skin color was just part of the mix and we don't see it. Um, so in their representations of themselves that really emphasized race and skin color and, and demonstrated that their friendships were explicitly based on race and skin color, um, they demonstrated that they certainly did see race and also in doing so, they kind of resisted the integrationist framework that was promoted at their school. Um, and then in addition to resisting that rhetoric promoted at the school through those kinds of essentialized representations of their racial identity, um, they sometimes instead emphasize their capacity to merge and incorporate difference and a, and a lack of significance of race. Um, so, and I think significantly at another school where I did field work where the, where the young people who attended my, uh, the after school program went, um, those students were segregated into English language learner classrooms, so they weren't mainstreamed. And that group of students was much more, um, they would much more frequently downplay race rather than emphasize it. And I saw this as a sort of resistance to, to what they encountered at their school. So they would say, we don't think of race, race stuff doesn't matter to us, we like to mix it up. Um, so I think their emphasis on flexibility and or hybridity and their descriptions of how they made friends allowed them to emphasize that they could be friends with anyone present in their daily lives and that, you know, in their ability to identify with people of various backgrounds, they didn't have these restrictive, essentialized identities of their own. Um, so emphasizing a lack of significance of racial categories and forging friendships kind of allowed them to demonstrate a legitimate inattention to skin color in their personal relationships, as well as to subvert you know, perceived racial boundaries, but then 
On the other hand, hybridized self-representations where they emphasized the flexibility also allowed young people to echo a dominant discourse of how race ought not to matter to them. Um, and, and then presenting these essentialized racial identities allowed them to, to challenge that claim. So I think just looking at how they described their friendships was uh, a sort of a, an easy way to, to, for them to depict how they saw themselves. And that's why it became sort of a central way to look at their representations of identity and how that related to um, the multicultural framework of their lives. Yeah. And then in the chapter five, you kind of depart from the everyday sort of these unconscious makings and reproductions of identity and self mm. that you handle so well in chapter four. And you tell us about the more explicit self-conscious displays of identity and self. Could you share with us how you see the differences between performing identity versus the everyday makings of identity? Yeah, so I think the performing identity was a sort of allowed for these much more conscious and and creative ways of of um, playing with identity. So the schools and the communities um, that that these young people were part of provided lots of regular opportunities for young people to formally perform their national or cultural or ethnic identities. And they had, you know, multicultural nights and celebrations and things like that. And I'll say that the majority of my informants really valued um, and anticipated these um, performances. They were always really excited about them. Um, but they also often worried about authenticity when participating in those performances. They would say things like, what if a real African comes to this, you know, um, referring to an African dance performance. So I think that that concern with authenticity demonstrates a kind of conflict between how young people wanted to project a sense of themselves and how they were framed. So in these, four, you know, how they were framed more broadly in multicultural um, context. So I think that that these formal performances went, were some, because they were sometimes controlled externally, they created a level of, um, they allowed for sort of conscious depictions of identity, but they also created a level of conflict because maybe how, how they saw themselves or the particular ethnic group to which they belonged might not have been what the school expected in terms of the, the performances that they were eliciting. Um, I also talked about that chapter in that chapter about um, a hip hop song that a group of my of seven Sudanese young people explored. Um, a, a group of seven Sudanese young people wrote and recorded during the course of my research. And that project was sort of was different to those regular celebratory performances because it was um, initiated by the young people themselves. So I think in that context, looking at a formal performance allowed for um, just for them to, to it allowed them a, a, an additional layer of sort of choice and creativity and how they and how they projected themselves. So I think that that song that they recorded was probably one of the most fun and interesting empirical findings of the book, at least for me in the, in the writing and participating. Um, and it really demonstrated how young people can creatively and, and dynamically engage with the discourses they encountered in their daily lives. Um, so in that instance, the young people, this, this group of seven Sudanese um, young people in Australia, they, they um, 
they sought identification with what they deemed as sort of the real black experience in their words, in terms of the cool and the resistance and a kind of counter whiteness of an African-American identity. So they sort of just picked what they wanted to align themselves with. And they did so through this, the lyrics of the song in a really uh, interesting way. So what they did in the first official ver verse of the song, well, what, when they were brainstorming, they would come up with, they'd talk about what they wanted to reference or what they wanted to write about. And they would have these American and hip hop references like basketball or President Obama was the president at that time, um, MTV and these kinds of things. And then they would also have references that were more experiences in their own lives, like Africa, Sudan. Um, and in the first official verse of the song, it had the phrase, the hood in Africa was pretty hard. Um, and in order to survive, we had to sell drugs. And then the other line was moving with the thugs, rolling faster than slugs. So there was this sort of juxtaposition between their real experiences of poverty and living in, in Africa with these associations of power and toughness through um, selling drugs and hanging out with thugs, which of course they never did. Most of them were, you know, under 10 when they moved to Australia, but it allowed them to kind of subtly shift their self-representation towards a sense of empowerment rather than poverty. And in the song, they would constantly reference um, the ghetto place and the hood, which are, which of course are both references used frequently in hip hop music and in American slang to describe poor urban areas in US cities. Um, and they also evoke these racist stereotypes of crime and poverty and, and as well as images of masculinity and toughness. But for the for the young people um, writing the song, they use these words to sort of represent a, a, a place of belonging. When I asked them about why they used the hood or the ghetto, they would describe they would say it's a good place. It's it's about family and it's about friends and where I belong. Um, so it allowed the young people to sort of create meaning in their own experience of displacement through this kind of alignment with an image of blackness that that reflected for them strength and influence and power as it depicted um, poverty and disadvantage. So yeah, it just seemed to allow these formal performances just allowed an additional level of conscious engagement with how they wanted to represent themselves. And, and in, in some instances, like I said, it created some conflict, which also forced a more conscious, self-conscious um, decision-making process and how they would represent themselves. Yeah, and um, I think that throughout the book, you also show um, that you made yourself very interested in giving them the agency. Like, you're not giving them the agency. They already have agency, but mm. um, you do such a good job in kind of uh, showing us that it's, complex but at the same time it is based on their choices and their their engagements mm -hmm. so i'm also interested in uh, how you approached agency throughout your research and throughout the book um i think well the, the first thing that comes to mind is in the instance of this song the way that that actually emerged was that we, the students who participated in that project were part of the um, after school program for which I was the coordinator. And at one point we had some extra funding um, and I put it to them 
what they would want to do with the funding. And so, you know, I was thinking they were going to want to go to like an amusement park that was <laughs> or, or have a party or do something like that. And the, and they said that they wanted to write this song. Um, so, so I think that there's a level of agency enacted in just letting them make some of the decisions and that, and really their decisions were what swayed the course of the book. So in that instance, they said they wanted to write a song. So then I spent Saturdays um, with them for some months until they had a version of the song they were happy with. And that was really completely their own initiative. You know, like there were some bits of wording changed, changed by the, sound person to fit the words with the track, but they decided what would what, what it would be about. I gave them no input at all in terms of what their song would be about. And I think just in terms of the research more broadly, um, I just kind of followed their lead in terms of the directions that 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 the research went. I, I didn't even really approach it. Like I said, I didn't have um, the Australian multicultural framework as forming the sort of broad context of the book in, in mind. And I, I don't think um, race was even something that I necessarily thought of as, as what would emerge as really prominent and salient in their lives. So it was just a lot of really open-ended um, questions initially. And then, like I said, having the, the luxury of time to sort of let things emerge more naturally, I felt like they what I what the book ended up being was really nothing like what I had anticipated it would be initially and I just sort of followed was able to really follow their lead in terms of because of because I was broadly exploring young people from refugee backgrounds and sort of how they identified um, I was able to to just follow to to, to let their own stories emerge um, and let the let the answers to how they define themselves kind of come out naturally um yeah so I think yeah yeah amazing um and could you share with us what kind of a space humor occupies uh for these young refugees when tackling with experiences related to racism and citizenship yeah um humor was such a big part of of the all, my whole fieldwork experience and I don't know, maybe, maybe I just got lucky and had a lot of funny informants because it did make it fun. Um, maybe it's just young people. Um, but um, I do think that, that, that we can draw some conclusions that humor did sort of help them. It, it helped them in terms of forming a kind of solidarity in a group and a sense of belonging with one another. Um, and then it probably also helped them to sort of manage these, the expectations of the broader community. So um, in that sort of push and pull, the feeling of being like pushed to integrate and then also the expectation of performing identities and this sort of constant, you know, they're pulled by their parents in one direction and the schools in another and lots of different um not lots of different competing pressures. And I imagine that humor um, you know, was a helpful way for them to deal with that and to to be together and to create a sense of fun and community with one another. Um, and like I said, I don't know, maybe I just had a lot of funny informants and it was just <laughs> lucky. But yeah, humor was a really big part of their everyday interactions with each other and 
and it, it, they, they used it explicitly when talking about or confronting issues of, of race and racism. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I felt very lucky while reading the humorous parts. I found myself smiling and laughing a lot of times. Okay, and, I'm um, happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very much appreciated. Um, so uh, my last question about the book will be on um, the spatial aspects of your research. So what does Brisbane Uh, occupy uh, like what what kind of a space is Brisbane in terms of um, the migrant population and refugee youth? Yeah, um, so Brisbane is a small is a, s- a smaller city. I don't have all my numbers in front of me, but uh, as Australian cities are go, it's it's among the smaller and it doesn't have a huge, it doesn't have the biggest um, refugee population. Um, but what it did have at the time of my field work was the, the the Sudanese population initially and then eventually the Karen population was really sort of growing rapidly in Brisbane. So I think in terms of the space it was um it was it was sort of visual it was noticed by the broader population. It was sort of like visually fairly in a fairly small period of time in these small mostly white suburban streets there were suddenly these really tall, really dark Sudanese kids that just appeared. And so I think more than the, the sort of sheer numbers, just the, um, the, the sort of sudden emerging of, of refugee youth was really apparent at the time that I started my field work. Yeah, yeah, I see. Um, well, thank you for taking us through your book and your thinking Uh, we have taken up a lot of your time, so I will now move into my last question. Sure. So um, what are you working on now and what will be your next project? Sure. Um, so I'm currently involved in some engaged anthropological work. I'm the, di- the director of the refugee project for a children's literary magazine called Stone Soup. Um, and in this role, I collect writing and artwork by children living in refugee camps um, or resettled in host countries um, across the globe. And I collect that for publication in the Stone Soup magazine and also for broader um, public dissemination. Also in in this role, I teach um, workshops on ethnography and autoethnography to young people um, across the world via Zoom. And I'm working on a project wherein young people living in refugee camps who've contributed work, creative works, will will exchange some autoethnographic work with other young people um, enrolled in ethnography workshops. And so that's a really exciting project. And I, I do teach anthropology in, in um, university classrooms. Um, in terms of new research directions, I have a just recently published article in the spring issue of NEOS, which is a publication of the anthropology of Children and Youth Interest Group um, of the American Anthropological Association. And that's a special issue titled uh, in, in the Pursuit of Racial Justice in Child and Youth Studies. And in my um, commentary in that, in that journal, I argue that the careful consideration of how the next generation of white youth make sense of and develop a consciousness about and engage with their own sense of whiteness Um, is really critical to understanding how racial inequality um, 
persists and I look at the role of empathy in that project, in that process. So broadly, that that um, is sort of the direction I'm moving in, and that would be the focus of a next research project. Yeah, so you will continue with your amazing, engaged, collaborative and innovative work, in short, I guess. Yes. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, we'll certainly be looking forward to reading uh, more from you. Thank you very much, Dr. Moran, for your time, for joining us and for sharing your insights with us. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. I'm your host, Fulia Pinar. This discussion of belonging and becoming in a multicultural world, published by Rutgers University Press in 2019, is brought to you by the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. Thank you.